John finishes recounting his apocalypse, and we learn of the judgments to come at the end of the world. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. Uh, this is our final Come Follow Me broadcast of 2019, Revelation chapter 12 through 22. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. As always, should you like to ask a question, at this point it will probably be about the Book of Mormon, but you're welcome to also go back and ask a question about any subject. Uh, send email to gt at gospeltoctrine.com. As always, we appreciate your five-star reviews. They help us spread the word. And we also appreciate you spreading the word directly. They help us find uh, additional listeners for our podcast. So it's exciting. Uh, oh, by the way, look f- this week for our special episode where I answer your questions. Some of your questions I'm actually holding over because they relate to early chapters of the Book of Mormon. But most of the questions that, I, that have been uh, sent in, I'll be answering those on a special episode later this week. So uh, let's get right into Revelation chapter 12 through 22. And a lot of the things that I would normally cover this week, this is really a two-part lesson. So a lot of the things I covered last in the last Revelation lesson. And so if you're wondering what happened, um, then make sure you're listening to both of the lessons together. And I realize the first one was a little bit long. Some people like that. Some people uh, may, may not. I don't know. Uh, I haven't heard from anyone who who doesn't like it when I go over time, but I'll try to keep this one shorter. So the uh, first of all, remember, let's remember what happened in the first lesson. The audience of this book are these seven churches that John, the prophet John, is writing to in Asia Minor. So it is not a modern audience that John is writing to. Secondly, his symbol for Christ is this lamb who, as it was, slain. The lamb appears to have been slain. And so this lamb has its throat cut, and it's, a, and it's covered probably down the chest in blood. So this, this symbol keeps recurring for John. He keeps seeing Jesus Christ represented as a slain lamb. And the, the lamb has all power in heaven and earth. All power is given unto the lamb. The scroll representing God's plan of salvation has seven seals on it and could only be opened by the Lamb, and that was met with great rejoicing by everyone witnessing this. So that was kind of what happened in the first part of the book of Revelation. Now we're going to pack a bag again, as I've mentioned before, how we talk about getting our uh, conceptual ideas in place so that we can understand things more quickly. So to pack our bags for this lesson, let's talk a little bit about the fall. Remember, in the story of the fall related in Genesis, God creates, in six days he creates his creations and then he looks on them and he sees that all things are good. Now, when Adam and Eve decide to partake of the fruit of good and evil, they also are, they, what they want is to understand good and evil, right? They want to be as the gods, as the serpent tells them. And if you've ever wondered what was so wrong about wanting to partake of the fruit and understand good and evil, well, the, the, there's an insight into this, and I actually heard this uh, on, a, on a podcast that I listen to frequently. Uh, there's a, a political commentator named Ben Shapiro, but he's also a prominent Jew, and sometimes he explains religious themes from the Bible, and this was one that I thought was very insightful. 
He said, what was the big deal about Adam and Eve trying to eat of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil? He pointed out that before they partook of the fruit, God saw everything as good, and the word good in this context meant how useful it was to God. So the the plants, the land, the light and darkness, even man, everything that God had created was good. But as you read it, you don't think that the plants were good as opposed to being evil, that they went around they went around doing moral works. What you thought as you read that was, oh, God saw that he did a good job with them and they are fulfilling his purpose. So good before the fall meant how useful it is to God. Then what did Adam and Eve do? They, When they partook of the fruit, they had the knowledge of good and evil, but knowledge might be a little bit misleading. It may be that they had the ability or the knowledge of how to define good and evil for themselves. And this is, this is just one way of looking at the fall, but I think it's there's something to it which is that after the fall, Adam and Eve and their posterity, they had the ability to make decisions about what they thought was right. And if you look at human history, in general, the way that people define good and evil is what helps me. And where do I feel pleasure and or pain? So am I, am I experiencing what I like right now? And if, if so, then it's good. And if not, then it's evil. So this idea of evil crept into the world, not evil as, a, uh, as defined by God's purposes, uh, evil temptation, something that draws me to perform evil acts towards another person or towards myself, or to disrespect the image of God that is found in me, but evil in the sense that uh, I am, evil is done to me and I don't like it. I am not having a good time right now. Now, there are overlaps between those things. This isn't a pure lie of Satan, but it is a lie in that God's definition of good and evil and man's definition of good and evil are not the same thing. Uh, so further in the fall, we have Adam, his, whose name means man. And in Latter-day Revelation and modern Revelation, we have revealed to us that Adam and Michael are the same person. Michael was his name as a pre-mortal being and a post-mortal being, but while he was on the earth, he was known as Adam, which is interesting because Michael means in the image of God, and Adam means man. And the point, the whole purpose that God created man was to reign. If you read that first couple of chapters of Genesis, you'll see that men and women were created to rule and reign over the earth. And so the, the role of people is to rule with God. We are to be kings and queens. And Adam is such a potent symbol because not only does his name mean man, and in many contexts and many languages, it can be generalized, men, men and women. In other words, Adam represents humankind, and especially Adam and Eve, they represent the human family. And Michael is someone who's in the image of God, so we'll see how Michael becomes a character in Revelation. So just remember that he is, his name means in the image of God. Now the fruit, so the fruit represents substituting Man's judgment for God's judgment. We've talked many times about the meaning of, uh, well, let's point, I'll point to one specific scripture. In the second chapter of Colossians, we talked about how Jesus made a spectacle of those who were coming after him when he, when he nailed our debts to the cross in his victory procession. So his enemies were revealed for the corrupt leaders that they were when Jesus died for us. And his victory procession was his march to his own death. 
In other words, Christ's victory was found in revealing the truth and not actually overcoming people or conquering them in a military sense. So revealing the truth and the truth being known, clarity is Christ's victory. And that is, that is in line with this idea that when we substitute our ideas of what's right and wrong for what, or what's good for what God's idea is of what's right and wrong or what's good, then we have become corrupt. And Daniel had a vision about this when he saw these beasts, these four beasts in Daniel chapter 7, come out of the sea and trample and stomp everything in sight. Uh, Daniel had several visions about this, actually, this very idea that all of human governments and all of human society is doomed to be corrupt because it's fallen. It's fallen society. We have substituted our judgment for God's judgment. And as soon as that kind of society reaches maturity, what you get are, without exception, beasts. Now, the word Babylon is just a symbolic word. If you remember, Peter closed his epistles writing from Babylon, but he was actually in Rome. So he used the word Babylon as a placeholder to insert any, basically Babylon, insert your current corrupt system of government here. That's what the word Babylon means. So when you see Babylon throughout the book of Revelation, you can know that what Peter's saying, or what uh, John is saying, is that the, the corrupt government systems of man. Now, uh, so let's begin now in chapter 12. So John has finished talking about, first of all, the 12, or I'm sorry, the seven seals. There are a bunch of sevens, if you remember, in the book of Revelation. First, the seven seals, and then there were seven trumpets, and the seven trumpets sounded. So the seven seals Joseph Smith revealed were seven thousand years, each seal representing a thousand years of human history or of the, uh, of the, what you might call the ecclesiastical history of earth or the religious history of earth. And the seven trumpets were seven judgments. Now we're taking a break from the seven seals. And in chapter 12, we have the story of a dragon coming out of heaven. And it has seven heads and 10 horns. It, it resembles nothing more than one of the beasts from, uh, from the seventh chapter of Daniel. But it also resembles the serpent from the Garden of Eden. And we, we can see why that, that is actually a deliberate image because this is a beast that represents Satan. Now, Satan is a, is a Hebrew word that actually means prosecutor or what you might call an accuser. And in some translations, that's just what Satan is. So Satan is basically just somebody who tries to get, who tries to put uh, the judgments of God onto as many people as possible. Now, earthly prosecutors, especially in the United States, they don't necessarily want to do that, but their job is not to let you off the hook, right? If a prosecutor is coming after you, it means he or she thinks you really committed a crime and therefore need to go to jail. And, and that is your accuser. That is a person who's not going to give up. They have to be defeated in order for you to be freed. And that is the role of Satan, except that Satan not only wants you to be found guilty, he wants you to become guilty. And there's a, that's a crucial difference. But in every other sense of the word, Satan is exactly like an accuser and as like a prosecutor, an adversary. That's why those are different names for Satan. It's because that's the literal meaning of his name. Now we see this battle continuing, this battle begun by Lucifer who became Satan, who became a serpent. If you remember uh, from, it's been almost two years now, but we discussed the fall and the serpent was actually a symbol of Christ. 
in the days before this uh, this tale of the fall became well known. And the, and the legend was that even to Adam and Eve before the fall, that the serpent was a, a symbol of Christ. So we have this, this angel who was high placed in the councils of God and who became Satan or the accuser and then took the form of a serpent in order to deceive Adam and Eve that he could be trusted. Now, thousands of years later, the, that symbol has been corrupted. So the symbol is no longer one to be trusted. Now it's something that is recognized as being corrupt and beastly. And the mainstream Christianity interpretation of the 12th chapter here of Revelation is that this is an earthly battle. This is, an, again, it's a restatement of human history, of the ecclesiastical or religious history, where all along the people of God have been warred against by some enemy. And it's not just a man-made enemy. It's not just the corrupt governments of men, but this is uh, John restating what Paul said when he talked about the armor of God. He said, we fight not just against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. What he was trying to say, what Paul was trying to say, or what he was saying that, that wasn't perfectly captured in that particular rendition is, it's not just a man our enemy is not just wicked men. Our enemy is actual spiritual darkness. There does exist some evil that is beyond what men can do. It seems to unite them and it seems to run through them. The beast is the power, the, the, there's a spiritual power that's more than a human enemy. There's a devil, in other words. Satan does exist and he is beyond what people can do. And I should say beyond what people can conquer on their own. And that's why this figure Michael is so key. He's so important because he's in the image of God. So exactly like man is, like Adam was meant to be, that's how Michael is. He's powerful. He's, he's in the image of God, but he's also doing the works of God. So if Adam and Michael are one and the same, what that means is that the fall has been reversed and that man is now not only uh, becoming in the image of God like he always was, but living up to that image and actually ruling and reigning and overcoming or conquering. Again, this military language coming in that lets us know that uh, it is a it is a real battle. It is very similar to a real high stakes flesh and blood battle, the spiritual fight that Michael fights against the dragon, against Satan. Uh, and that the the Latter Day Saint view of this chapter is that. We're, what we're talking about happened before people came to earth. And this is a perfect restatement of the general ideas that, uh, that we teach in the doctrine of the war in heaven. So the Satan and his angels are cast out and angels remember can mean messengers or even servants here in the book of Revelation. So they're cast out from somewhere, they're cast out of heaven, whatever that means, and they can't come to earth. Now there's also a woman who has a man-child, and this man-child is taken up into heaven. Now, the woman can you, can, you can actually kind of look a little bit creatively at what these symbols might mean. To me, the woman represents God or God's plan, and the man-child is obviously Jesus Christ uh, or God himself, right? Because Jesus and Jehovah are one and the same person. So in that sense, what would it mean for the woman to give birth to this man? What it might mean is that the earth itself, the, the plan of God, the plan of salvation, gives birth to a need for a savior. So, but what seems clear is that the child is Jesus Christ and Jehovah at the same time. That child is taken up into heaven, and after being cast out, the serpent and his 
or the dragon and his servants make war with the followers of this woman. And the dragon even sends a flood, which uh, in the later part of chapter 12, which you could see as uh, a representation of the flood of Noah, right? And the earth swallows up the flood to save those people that are following God, the plan of God. Now, uh, and that, and I don't know that that's the right interpretation, but in t- verse 12, chapter 11, or I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 11, you can see that the, the dragon is overcome by the blood of the lamb. Now, overcome, remember from the first part of this lesson, it's a military term. There's a lot of military vocabulary that's used throughout the scriptures to talk about the way that God conquers Satan. But what we learn, I think something very important that we learn in the book of Revelation is that this is symbolic. Now, it may be that there do come military conflicts. There's Certainly, the Book of Mormon is full of them between the people of God and the people of Satan, where right is clearly on one side 100%, and darkness is clearly, or evil is clearly on the other side 100%. But it seems to me that when the scriptures talk about that particular conflict, they're speaking more symbolically. Uh, may or may not be right about that. But just remember that the people of God, they overcome or they conquer by the blood of the Lamb. That is the means that they gain victory. And overcoming is the whole quest of all of the people that are involved here. God promised all seven of these churches that John is writing this epistle to that if they would overcome, they get the blessings we talked about last week. All right, let's move on to chapter 13. Uh, here we see two beasts, and they are similar. They have, they're, they're composed of different parts of different animals, and they have they even share a lot of uh, attributes like horns and, and heads, etc., with the beasts from Daniel chapter 7. Now we remember, and, the, and this interpretation is given explicitly in that chapter, that these are the corrupt governments of men. But one of them is wounded unto death. It's when its head is wounded, and then its head has power to come back to life. And the other one seems to give power to the first beast and make everyone worship it. So one interpretation is that the first beast is sort of a military aspect to the corruptness of men and, or, or the force, violence, etc. And the other one is untruth, lying, uh, all means of coercion that are not military power, that are not physical force. And Anyway, that's one, that's one interpretation with which you can look at this. What I try to imagine as I'm reading the book of Revelation and other similar books is that the prophet has had an experience that goes beyond words that is so powerful and so deep and so quickly related that it didn't come in language. And then it's the job of the prophet to try to render that in a, in a, into a form that can be understood. Now, it may be that he saw this vision as he's relating it, and that God meant it to be conveyed to us symbolically. Or it could be that John saw the vision and all of its meanings, and this is the best way he could figure out to convey the multiple layers of what he was witnessing. Uh, we, we Hopefully we'll find that out one day. For right now, we just have to guess. But the So these beasts, that might be one meaning of what these beasts mean. Now, it's interesting that one of them dies and then comes back to life. Then we get this, I'll, I'll explain why in a second. Then we get this uh, mark of the beast. Now, this is one part of Revelation that everybody knows about. The number 666 is the number of the beast. And the mark of the beast will be placed 
in the on the forehead or the right hand or both of everyone who wants to buy and sell and without that you can't buy and sell so let's talk about the mark of the beast let's talk about the number of the beast and what it means to be put on the head and the hand but uh, first the number of the beast well if you know much about Hebrew and ancient Hebrew culture first of all their numbers were actually uh, expressed with the letters of the alphabet and you would add up you would demarcate a number in a certain way and you would use letters of the alphabet and then you would add up all those letters the numbers that they represented and then that would give you the number that you were talking about it wasn't a place value system as we have today we actually use Arabic numerals they did not in this time period or in uh, Old Testament times especially and so when somebody expresses a number like 666 for example th it is possible that there could be words that when viewed as a number would have that numerical value this is the case with 666 and a lot of people have theorized that John was talking specifically about Nero who would have been the Caesar through much of his life uh, so the word for Nero Emperor Emperor Nero uh, if you thought about the first emperor of Rome, you would say Julius Caesar. You would add his title to his name, and this would have been the way that Nero was represented as well. So Caesar Nero or Kaiser Nero in Hebrew, uh, and he would have had a in Hebrew he would have had a final N on his name. So Kaiser Neron. If you add the the values of those letters up, they add to 666. And the word beast, similarly, also adds up to 666 in, in Hebrew. Uh, to support the idea that Nero was the beast that he was talking, that John was talking about, at least on the surface, is the fact that in some Greek manuscripts, the number of the beast instead of 666 is 616. And in Greek, the word for Nero is Kaiser Nero instead of Kaiser Neron. Well, if you take that final N off, then it actually adds up to 616. So it seems like even when you're, when the, the number of the beast in Hebrew might be 666 and in Greek might be 616, even though we don't have a Hebrew manuscript of Revelation, I don't want to give you that impression, but it is possible that John originally wrote this or dictated this or, or worked it out in Hebrew and then it was translated into Greek. And when that happened, then it was... 666 and then later on somebody came and said oh is he talking about Caesar uh, no it's 616 that's one idea of what this means um, in any case much like Babylon is an archetype where anytime there's a corrupt government anytime there is an idolatrous society the word Babylon is used uh, if Caesar Nero is indeed the beast as John is describing then he would also similarly he would be an archetype he would be just one manifestation of the idea of a corrupt ruler uh, further support for Nero being the beast is the idea that people had at the time when Nero killed himself so uh, let's do a little bit of history Nero um, I can't remember the exact year but it would have been before the destruction of Jerusalem so in the 60s AD there was a great fire in Rome. You might have heard the old saying that Nero fiddled while Rome was burning. And so uh, Nero took a big hit politically because there was a fire in his town. So he blamed it on the Christians and that was very convenient. And then people hated Christians and they were put to death in great numbers and persecuted very heavily. 
because of this fire, because of Nero's blaming them for the fire. When Nero died, uh, he committed suicide, many people think. The legend was that he would return to rule, that he wasn't really dead, or that he would come back to life. And so that would be one way in which Nero would actually match up with the beasts that John has portrayed in this chapter. Okay, so that being said, I don't actually think that Nero is the entire meaning of the beast, especially not as used in the Mark of the Beast. Um, I do think that John had Rome on his mind. So when he was talking about Rome, he, he portrayed these two aspects of Roman rule, one which was their military power, which was second to none. They were conquering the world, the known world at that time. But secondly, they had this uh, this spiritual, the preaching of the of the religion of Rome. They also had the, uh, the beliefs in the hearts of the people that Rome was the best place on earth, that the Roman ideology was the best ideology. Hellenistic culture was superior to all others. And that may be the two beasts that John is talking about, the idea that there is power to force people to believe and to do, to believe as you will and to do what you say. And secondly, uh, the power to convince them and to, and to give strength to that force. It may be that this has an entirely different uh, meaning, but this is one that I see that has a lot of uh, convincing, it's very persuasive to me. Now let's talk about the placement of the mark of the beast. So if you remember, if in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Israel makes a covenant with God and they are told, if you've ever seen a Jewish worshiper uh, especially Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox, they, uh, they tie a prayer box onto their right hand and onto their foreheads. And these prayer boxes are called phylacteries, and they, uh, they contain scrolls with prayers on them or scriptural passages. And they were instructed to do this in the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. And along with this came a proclamation called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. And so the, this is a clear reference to the Shema of Israel, where God says, you are going to worship me with your head, with where you think, with where you believe, with your faith, and with your hand. The things that uh, you do the actions that you take in the world. So the representation of where you will tie your prayers, or where you, where you will mark yourselves, is in the forehead and hand. And what John is saying is that the, the enemy, the spiritual enemy, the beast in the last days, will require a, sin, a similar sign of obedience as God originally required, a perverted sign of obedience. And if you aren't willing to provide this, then you will be unable to engage in commerce with the people who are. And in his own day, I can imagine that Jews were uh, given economic disadvantages. Jews, in fact, have been given economic disadvantages in many times throughout history because of their beliefs. And that would be a manifestation, in my opinion, of this idea that there could be no uh, commerce. We, we actually find this quite a bit in our day, and it's, and it's been accelerating over the last few years, where if you don't have a politically popular opinion, then you, you can have your, uh, your credit card ability to process credit cards taken away. You can have your, your sponsors, if you're a broadcaster, your sponsors, sponsors will be attacked and boycotted because they're doing business with you. You don't share the popular opinions. Therefore, you will be deplatformed and canceled in cancel culture, which is a modern 
phrase. And um, so this is a political movement to take away people's ability to engage in commerce if they don't have, if they aren't willing to put on certain opinions. Now, when this is coupled with the the desire, the fallen, the desire of fallen man to redefine good and evil according to man's ideas, then what you have is the mark of the beast or the requirement that this mark be placed on your head and on your hand. This is my own personal interpretation of what this mark means. And it could be that the 666 is, uh, like we talked about, a, a numerical representation of, of Neaser, uh, Nero Caesar and that he would that he's an archetype. Or it could also mean, now there have been a lot of sevens throughout the book of Revelation, uh, and seven means God. Seven is the amount of time it took God to do his creations, both the creation of the Garden of Eden in seven time periods, but also the seven seals represent seven time periods. That's human history. So God's creation, but also his plan. They're sevens. Seven is perfection. It's, it's maturity. It's completion. And six was the day in which God created man. And, and man substituting his own wisdom for God's wisdom is the very definition of the fall. And so 666 is similar to saying man, man, man. Now you remember last time we talked about how God was surrounded by angels who were saying holy, holy, holy. When they say something three times, they've just emphasized it to the ultimate degree. And so when you put three sixes on your forehead and on your hand, what you're saying is, I accept man's ability to define right and wrong to the ultimate degree. I utterly reject God's power over me in this world, both in the way I think and in the way I act. And I'm willing to place that. Uh, I'm willing to accept that. I'm willing to give it my devotion and my allegiance and then move forward into the world according to that covenant. I've made a covenant with my opponent, with my accuser, with Satan. So that's what the mark of the beast, in my opinion, is. Uh, A very interesting symbol a potent symbol and if you're and if you're willing to look into it it's a very powerful symbol spiritually it helps us to resist evil and to see evil and to spot it more clearly to identify it Uh, so that's chapter 13. now in chapter 14 we see that the lambs uh first of all one of the interesting verses from this chapter is the uh angel who comes out of heaven who has the power of the everlasting gospel to relate it to men now uh, modern prophets have identified this angel as the angel Moroni, who has the Book of Mormon, who has the message of the restoration to commit to people on the earth. Um, So to every kindred, nation, kindred, tongue, and people. But the the rest of this chapter is about the Lamb's army in the New Jerusalem, and they're praising God and they're rejoicing in victory. So if you take the last two chapters and then combine it with this one, what you see is a choice that is made. You have a, a spiritual battle between the forces of evil who include both corrupt governments and a spiritual darkness that extends beyond the realm, the realm of man. But then you have a a lamb who has been willing to suffer and die for humankind on the other side and his followers and who will ultimately be as we see in this in this chapter he'll be victorious and he'll create a civilization in which all people are blessed and so this is setting forth the great the great dichotomy of human choice of human history that we can choose to go in one of two directions and then receive one of two sets of blessings that's chapter 14. Uh, it describes a harvest 
the harvest of the grain. So the the Son of Man or, the, or God is is uh, Jesus is ready to reap the earth, and he has a sickle in his hands, and he's he on the one hand he can reap the grain harvest of those who have been righteous, and then on the other hand he can reap the grape harvest of those who have been wicked. It's very similar to the to the parable of the wheat and the tares, that at the time at the certain time God would reap uh, his field, and then the grape would be gathered into the barn, but the tares would be cast out and burnt. In this case, the the grapes would be, I'm sorry, the tares would be cast out and burnt. The grapes in uh, this metaphor of revelation, they would be cast into the great wine press of God. And so the the future of all wickedness is the justice of God. And this will justice will be unpleasant. The future of all righteousness is to be justified by God and sanctified by him. Again, we go back to the sevens. Now we get into chapter uh, 15, 16. We had seven seals, we had seven trumpets, and now we have seven vials. And these are, again, like the trumpets, they're judgments of God. They match closely with the plagues of Egypt, uh, not necessarily in order or in number, but in type. They, they seem to be similar to the plagues of Egypt. They, it may be that these plagues are released during the seventh seal or during the blowing of the seventh trumpet and therefore match the time, the end times. It may also be that they are just a retelling of human history and it's another way of restating the message of the seven seals. It's up to you to decide. Uh, but if it is that these are the plagues and the, the tribulations to come about in the end time, then the sixth vial is it matches up in either case. The dragon and the beast are gathering together and they gather a human army and they, uh, this is called Armageddon, which is really just a restatement of the Hebrew phrase Har Megiddo, which is, means battle of Megiddo. This is a physical, uh, or I'm sorry, the, the valley of Megiddo. This is a physical place. It still exists today. I've been there a few, quite a few times. Uh, it's between, it separates Northern Israel from, the, from Central and Southern Israel, modern day Israel. It's a battle that runs east and west, and it's a place where uh, more than once in the Old Testament, uh, the, the, those who were fighting against the nation of Israel met with Israel in battle. But it's also uh, it's a callback to the battle with the forces of Gog. Now, Gog is a multinational conglomeration. It's an, it's an alliance. It's an unholy alliance of beastly nations as related in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. So this this battle would have given, much like uh, a lot of the images from the last week, they would have given people a cause to go back to the Old Testament and read their Hebrew scriptures. This battle would give uh, John's first readers a cue to go back and read again Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then the seventh vial comes out, which is the final victory and judgment. So God is going to win this battle. That's the prophecy. In uh, chapters 17 and 18, we read about Babylon is depicted as a harlot. Now the harlot is very glamorous. It's very attractive. She's she's decked out. But if you can imagine the reaction of these members of church communities reading about a harlot, the more the more beautiful or the more attractive the harlot is, the more repulsive she is because the more likely she is to create wickedness to the people reading this for the first time. Uh, today probably a a prophet would find some other image 
because in today's world this might be seen as misogynistic why does it have to be an unvirtuous woman and why you know why is women's virtue held on a different standard to that of men's virtue all those things come in for us as modern readers but this would not have been the case so if you can leave those behind to the best of your ability and just read this as they would have received it you can understand that uh, what John is trying to do is relate something that is attractive to look at but utterly repulsive under the surface that is what the harlot of Babylon is riding the dragon so it, re it, it represents the combination the the harlot of Babylon is the earthly power to deceive and to force you it's it's the power of corruption and the dragon represents the spiritual darkness the actual person of Satan and his forces that that act on you spiritually so all of the ways in which Satan has to get you to do evil to turn you from the right path both both human based and spirit based forces that he can array against you so uh, now this in chapter 17 and 18 John is describing all of them as just one after another manifestation of this ancient form of evil of idolatry and uh, f so for example uh, the the destruction of Israel's enemies is given another another retelling here in this chapter here in chapter 17 and 18 but it it harkens back to the destruction of Babylon to the destruction of Edom to the destruction of the Phoenician city of Tyre so if you look in Isaiah chapter 13 or Isaiah 23 Isaiah 34 Isaiah 47 if you look in Jeremiah 50 and 51 if you look in Ezekiel 26 and 27 you will see a similar this is actually a composite of all of these battles in which the enemies of Israel are being destroyed. And the thing they have in common is that they're all idolatrous. They have all placed themselves as God and substituted their own judgment for that of God, their own version of what's right and wrong, for, the, for God's version of what's right and wrong. So that's what's going on here is that uh, modern-day Babylon, i.e. Rome, and any future Babylon that may come about is simply one more manifestation one more example of this ancient archetype which is a corrupt society who's willing to put their own judgment in place of God's judgment so Rome is just one more idolatrous nation and people when they mature when their governments when their corruption matures then it becomes a beast much like Daniel described in chapter 7 so now that takes us to chapters 19 and 20 and this tells the story of the final battle, what we would think of now we in LDS uh, doctrine, we have, a, we have a particular view of how the end times shake out. And I wanna talk about what other people who don't share that, what they might receive this as. So this describes a final battle and then a thousand years of peace where martyrs, the martyrs are brought back to life and reign with God and then a final judgment. In our view, the, this is a chronological story there's a final battle where um, Jesus, first of all, Jesus is represented as covered in blood before it begins, before the battle begins. And so he's not wounded in battle. Jesus comes in with his blood as a weapon or as a tool to be used to give him power in the battle. And the, the weapon that he has actually is a sword, but it comes out of his mouth. And he is the word of God, right? So Jesus is the, or the word, I should say, uh, remember that John would later describe Jesus as the or the word as the creator of all things so the word is coming 
covered in blood and wielding a sword, but the sword is his word. The sword is the word of the word. In other words, God's power comes from speaking. And what does God speak but the truth? So when Jesus appears, his blood symbolizes his willingness to die for people that have possibly not had a very uh, a very good record of following his will and speaking the truth to those people. Now, what will happen? They will they will fall on one side or the other of this of this final battle, and either they will be undone by the sword that proceeds from his mouth, that sword of accountability. When God speaks the truth, when Jesus speaks the truth about us, then we're held accountable for our actions. And we either allow ourselves to take advantage of this blood that he is using as a tool, or this this sword will act against us, and we will have made a choice to separate ourselves from God. So it may be that this is a literal battle that John is talking about, and it may be that it's the final, uh, as Joel described, multitudes in the valley of decision. This is similar to that final battle description because uh, the Valley of Decision could be a literal valley. It could be the, the, the Valley of Megiddo. It could be Armageddon. Or it could be that people are in the Valley of Decision, meaning they've, they've gone from one uh, line of hills and they can either continue forward to the line of hills in front of them or turn around and uh, allow themselves to retrace their steps and undo the earlier decision that they made because they regret it. And that's the valley of decision that all of us are in spiritually. I believe both interpretations are correct and are profitable for us spiritually. So then uh, this final battle is followed by the, a millennium. Now, mainstream Christians, some of them, not all of them, some of them think that this is going to shake out exactly like we believe it will, where, where there will be a thousand years of peace and then there will be a final judgment where Satan is released from prison one more time. But he's been absent from the from being able to tempt people for a thousand years, and finally, him and everyone who he and everyone who has opted to follow his plan will be separated once and for all. And so, there's a final battle, a millennium, and then a final judgment. And these are chronological events. But the other, uh, the other opposing I wouldn't I don't want to say opposing viewpoint, but another viewpoint is that the final battle. And the final judgment happen at the same time. They're both descriptions of end time actions taken by God towards the wicked. And the millennium or the, or the thousand years in which the, the martyrs reign and rule describes the present day, the time in, in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming in which the martyrs, the people who, have, who are willing to sacrifice for God, have to do the best they can on the earth because they're alone. They're, or not alone spiritually, but... God is not physically with them and giving them his matchless power. Uh, both interpretations have their appeal. Obviously, uh, Latter-day Saint doctrine lets us know which one that we believe the prophets have, have given their uh, official sanction to. And so the way that the end times will shake out is, has been spoken by modern-day prophets from Joseph Smith all the way to Russell M. Nelson, that there will be a final battle and there will be times of great tribulation and then there will be a thousand years of peace. But at the end of that time, there will be one more brief conflict after which the final judgment will occur. And then everyone by that time will have been resurrected. That brings us to our final two chapters of the book of Revelation and of the New Testament in the Bible. And uh, so it's it's very emotional time. We've, we've finished studying the entire, entire Bible uh, a wonderful book that has shaped human history more than any other work of, of literature, of art, of any kind. So such a wonderful book and such a privilege to study it. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture 
is chapter 21, verse 4, where it says that God will wipe all tears from their eyes. So he desc- he's describing the people that end up in God's city of n- the New Jerusalem. It says, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. So uh, God will create a new heaven and a new earth, as he describes in Isaiah 65, or a new Eden, as he describes in Genesis 12 and in Ezekiel 47. You remember in Ezekiel 47, there was a, a a revivifying stream that issued from the temple and gave life to the the entire country as it as it flowed down into the Dead Sea and brought it back to life. That's a new Eden because a, a river flowed out of the original Eden. Uh, a new Jerusalem, as described in Isaiah chapter two or or Zephaniah chapter three. This again is it's a composite image. This these chapters are of all of the new the new world that God will create, and old things are passed away. It seems from a, a Latter Day Saint perspective that even the law of opposition that Lehi uh, expounded upon in the Book of Mormon has been modified for these people. They don't have to experience constant suffering and sorrow. In fact, all of those things are done away. There are no more tears. So God will find some way in heaven that he can change. Maybe it is that the fact of the of how much we've suffered on earth is enough, or maybe it's just that this, our suffering will come from helping others to repent, and uh, we will be, you know, eternal missionaries for that cause in, in God's service. I can't say exactly, but all tears will be wiped from our eyes. And it almost seems like something that would be impossible. It seems like a, a consummation of God's plan that we can scarcely imagine, much like the the fact that time will be done away with. We don't really know what it would feel like, but this is the promise. Uh, as Isaiah said, that we can't even, we've never witnessed it nor, it, nor can it even come into our hearts, all the good things that God has prepared for them that love him. The, again, the, the image of a temple being measured and the city being measured is brought in, but this time the city is 500 miles wide and 500 miles long, and it's 500 miles high or deep. So this is a cube. It's a city that's a cube, or I'm sorry, not 500, 1,500 miles. And uh, so 1,500 miles high, uh, certainly no human achievement to date has reached that height, nor would it be uh, possible, right? It's, it's well beyond the habitability zone, either in a downward direction or in an upward direction. So this is symbolic. The number basically means that there will be no end to the city of God. The city of God will fill up everything. And not only will it fill up everything, but it will be a temple itself. There will be no need for a temple. God himself will be the sun, the moon. So it'll be the source of light, but also will be the temple. The The entire city is a temple. So the, the si- not only has the size of the city expanded so that nobody could ever reach the end of it, but all of it is a temple. In other words, in all of human dwelling, all of human civilization will be one shared place between the house of God and the house of man. And this is, this is a direct reference to the undoing of the fall, because that's what the temple is for. And it means that people will no longer substitute their judgment for what they think is right, for what God thinks is right. Uh, that is a direct fulfillment of the prophecy in, in Jeremiah 31, where it says, people will know me and, and they will keep my statutes. They will obey my new, co- my new covenant the way that they don't obey my covenant now. And so this is the fulfillment. What, what John is seeing is the fulfillment 
of all the promises from all of the Old Testament prophets, and he's given a symbolic way of viewing human history and seeing and showing that the plan of God, the great plan of salvation, is uh, the thing that anyone, any impartial observer, anyone arriving on the scene for the first time, it's the thing they would most desire. And so that's the, that's the powerful meaning of the book of Revelation. One more note, I kind of made reference to this last time, but in chapter uh, 22, verse 18, uh, John talks about someone being cursed for adding to his word. Now, just in case you've ever heard this, uh, John was specifically not talking about the New Testament. The New Testament did not exist when John wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, so you can, you can look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, and see that, that uh, Moses also wrote, whoever adds to my words will be cursed. And then people felt free to add to the Old Testament, which didn't exist, obviously. And the books of Scripture who, that have yet to be written in the future do not exist today. And no, if anyone said, don't add to my words, they, aren't, they don't mean don't add to the words that God will reveal to people. Uh, we talked a little bit last time about the fact that these two prophets prophesy in Jerusalem is a great testimony that John believes that Revelation will be gone ongoing throughout human history. And uh, so the, the seeming contradiction that John doesn't want his words to be added to is not a contradiction at all. John believes that more prophets will come, more prophets have come, and more prophets will continue to come until, until God's great work is done. And things will unfold in much the way that jo John described in chapters uh, 14 through 16, which is that the, the, we have a choice to be part of the, the harvest of the grain or the harvest of the grapes. Uh, much like the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, we get to choose. The, God says to his angels, don't, don't gather up the wheat and the tares yet because you can't tell wheat and tares apart. You can't tell them apart until they're fully ripe. So that's where the metaphor breaks down because if you're a wheat or a tear, you actually have no say in the matter. You just grow up according to the seed that you were planted as. But we get to choose. We get to choose which side of that we're on. It is so much easier to be a, stra a stock of wheat than you might imagine. It's as, uh, as President Holland said, perfection is something that is meant to come eventually. There's a very, very comforting verse in the Doctrine and Covenants, him who seeketh so to do. So, the, so salvation comes to those who keep the commandments of God or him who seeketh so to do. So maybe we all seek to keep the commandments of God and we will find ourselves on the right side of this harvest. God will cleanse us. If, if we were perfect, we wouldn't need his help, but he will cleanse us in the blood of the lamb. That is the great tool that Jesus will use to have victory over Satan forever. And all we have to do is ask, and we're included in that mercy. And the, the powerful justice, the, the awful day of the Lord will be wonderful to us. God bless you for reading the Bible. God bless you for studying the Old and the New Testament. And God bless you at the end of this year. May you have a wonderful new year. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.